Grace, mercy, and peace be yours today from God our Father, from our Lord, and from our Savior, Jesus. Amen. I'd like you to hear each of these words and the object of the verb. I love chocolate. I love my wife. I love going on vacation. I love my child. I love my neighbor. Each one of those uses of that verb requires or expects a different level of emotional response. So that while English doesn't really help us out very much, we all know that especially this time of year, if I say I love chocolate, that it's different than saying to my wife, Carol Ann, I love you. And what we unfortunately don't have access to in the English language are all of the nuances and the variations of meaning that that single four-letter word carries. But there's help. There's a way that we can understand some of the compelling features of that marvelous word. When you heard it, as you did a few minutes ago in this reading from 1 Corinthians, it's been on postage stamps. I did a little digging around and found out that it probably was in the 60s or 70s when postage stamps in various forms carried that word love. And the imagery or the artwork that frequently accompanies it would say a great deal about what that word meant. When I heard uh, the introductory Versus the, the, the tune to John Lennon and Paul McCartney's song, All You Need Is Love. That, of course, reminds me of a particular moment in my life a long time ago when that song was first produced. But we get a little bit of help here. And it comes from the Greek language, which means that it comes from the Bible. And there are indeed, in the Greek language, four different words depending on what do I mean when I say those words. I love whatever, whomever. And those four words tell us a lot about what St. Paul meant when he wrote to the people of it could have been faithful Hillsborough Christians. St. Paul writes to the people of this faith community. And Corinth is an affluent city. It's on a seaport. It's a crossroads. It's not too far across the, 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 uh, uh, the peninsula to Athens. There's wealth. And there are of wide, wide varieties of religious ideas. When these people of this church come to faith, they don't exactly know how to do it. 
and they struggle. They have a vast number of problems, and I'm going to read a couple of sections from a, another part of Corinthians in a few moments so you can get an idea of the difficulties they were facing. And so St. Paul writes to them, and he is very, very compelling in his argument. And you heard the, that reading from the uh, first 13 verses. But he chooses his words carefully. Now, there are a variety of uses of that word. And I'd like to ask you just to take a look at these for in just a couple of moments, because it helps understand why Paul chose the word that he did. The first one is this. How's your Greek? Anybody got it? The good word. It's Greek. Storge. Storge is how it's pronounced. And storge is a kind of love used to describe a particular kind of love that I think was most well characterized in a cartoon I saw a number of years ago from the New Yorker magazine. You know, the New Yorker has just incredible cartoons in them. And here was the cartoon. It's a husband and wife seated at a small table. And they have uh, champagne in front of them. There's a card on the table that says 4-0. I'm thinking it's a 40th wedding anniversary. The wife is holding her champagne glass to toast her husband, also holding the glass. The caption underneath the cartoon is this, in spite of everything. That is Storge, that knows all of the history, all of the difficulties, and allows people to say, people who love each other, Storge. And it applies not just in marriages, across all human relationships. Your first Greek lesson. Here's the second Greek lesson. Eros. Any question about that one? Erotic comes from it. Passionate Valentine's Day. Little candy hearts. Kind of love. Sensual. Sexual. Not exclusively, but that inclusive. That kind. And again, same word. You want to talk about in spite of everything, storge. You want to talk about passionate, engaging, blinding love, eros. Here's the third one. Philia, Philadelphia, city of brotherly love. The kind of love that is found deeply and strongly, primarily we think and we hope and we pray, within families that binds people together. One would do for one's sibling, family member, step in front of trains. That's that kind of love. Among those three choices, Paul chooses none of them when he writes 1 Corinthians. He gets to chapter 13, and I want to think that as he sits down there, uh, uh, wherever he is, probably in Ephesus, writing this letter to the people of Corinth, he has to think, which word? What do I want to tell those faithful people out there in Corinth about their life of faith, their commitment to Jesus? They're uh, continuing to sustain a, a religious and faith community under very, very difficult circumstances. What word do I use? 
This is the one he chooses. Agape. Love. That's the one. We only know it with those same four letters. But it has so much more to say to us. St. Paul uses that word to remind the people of the faith community and incidentally within their families, within every human relationship that people of faith have, that huge demands are placed on them. Because agape is a type of inclusive, expansive, engaging love that is capable of transforming human life, shifting human values, rearranging human priorities, and deepening every human relationship. That's the one that he chooses. Here's some of the things that, uh, some of the difficulties that these group, that these, these folks had to overcome. This is from the 11th chapter, St. Paul writes to them. Now, wouldn't you think that simply celebrating Holy Communion would not be a big issue? These folks are so contentious, they've made it a problem. St. Paul writes to them about the Lord's Supper. This is what he says. He says, in the following directives, those which follow, I have no praise for you. For your meetings do more harm than good. Have you ever heard of a church meeting doing more harm than good? St. Paul has. So if you ever thought, been to a church meeting that didn't go the way you want, there was the first one. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry, another one gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. Now, those are his harsh words. Just another dozen verses later, it begins this way. You already heard it. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not agape, transforming love, I am a noisy gong, or I am a clanging cymbal. And St. Paul issues the invitation, not just for the church, but to every person of faith, and to say, this is the kind of love that faithfulness requires. If you name the name of Jesus and call yourself a follower of the way. It's transforming. It is highly, highly risky because being an agape Christian means complete submission, not to oneself, but to another. Not to my own needs, but to God's claim. It's really the, the, the essential nature of what Jesus said in John chapter 4. We love because Christ 
first loved us. We love because we were first loved by God. If you've ever fallen in love, and I hope you have, or you will, you know what happens. Your chemistry changes. Things look different. You could kind of lose your focus. But it changes how you feel. St. Paul argues for that same kind of transforming power within the Christian community and in every human relationship. And it is absolutely selfless. And it requires risk. If you've read the book by John, <clears throat> John Krakauer, one of his books, uh, called Into Thin Air, you remember the story that it is the account of several very ill-fated uh, expeditions to climb Mount Everest. It was 1995. There was a, a small incident reported in the book, and the, it, there was a lot that was more popular than this, this particular incident. But this is one incident that happened that he reports in the book. I'm just going to read you this small section. In a short chapter that was inserted almost as an aside in Into Thin Air, Krakauer tells of three Indian climbers who were on the mountain at the same time that he was. They succumbed to exhaustion and oxygen deprivation while climbing Everest from the Tibetan side. They're found the day after they failed to go back to make it back to their base camp. And they're found by some Japanese climbers. The Indian climbers are disoriented. They are debilitated. But they are still alive. The Japanese climbers who are on their way up the mountain to summit do not stop to help them, but they walk past on their own ascent. Asked afterward about their failure to help the climbers, one of them answers this, we were too tired to help, for above 8,000 meters is not a place where people can afford morality. Above 8,000 meters is not a place where people can afford morality. My question, and I imagine yours as well, is this. Where do we draw the line and say agape love stops here? How do we draw that line? In the small community of Corinthian Christians, St. Paul said, you don't draw the line. It's not drawn at Holy Communion. It's not drawn in church meetings because there are no divisions. That is the compelling nature of what St. Paul spoke about and wrote about when he used those words. Love is patient and kind.
the Corinthian congregation faced ongoing problems. I'm sure they had already done what churches do. They called in the consultants, summoned the bishop, developed focus groups, did all of the self-examination issues that needed to be done, prayed diligently, and fundamentally they came back and had to come back to that single word, agape, the power of love to shape and to change who they were if they expected to change what they were doing and expected to change the world. Finally, this little quotation from one of my favorite writers, Reinhold Niebuhr, theologian of the uh, previous century, wrote compellingly in the 50s and the 60s. These are his words. Nothing that is worth doing can ever be achieved in our lifetime. Therefore, we must be saved by hope. Nothing which is true or beautiful or good makes complete sense in any immediate context of history. Therefore, we must be saved by faith. Nothing we ever do, however virtuous, can be accomplished alone. Therefore, we must be saved by love. If I speak in the tongues of men or angels but have not love, I am only a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but if I do not have love, I am nothing. Please join me in prayer. In this time of the year especially, Lord, the, the gift is love. We easily use the word cheaply. We forget about its power, its impact, until we approach these times of year with loved ones. When we hear the stories of the birth at Bethlehem, Lord, help us to access that kind of love, the power of that love that shapes and changes who we are. In your name we pray. Amen.